welcome to Mondays with Mo. I'm your host, Don Kennedy. Our podcast covers important topics related to the admissions process in the University of Central Missouri. My guest today is Tony Lubers, Director of Financial Aid at UCM. Hi, Tony, and welcome to the show. Hi, Don. I'm glad to be here. Tony, today we'll be talking about the FAFSA and types of financial aid our students have access to at UCM. Um, we hear the term FAFSA a lot. What does that term stand for? Uh, FAFSA stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And I, I just want to emphasize that first F, free. There's been a lot of uh, companies out there that try to charge people to complete their FAFSA for them. And you should not have to pay uh, to have the FAFSA done. And that's what our office is here for, uh, is to assist students and parents with filling out the FAFSA. Um, October 1st is the first day the FAFSA will be open for students to file for the 2022-2023 school year. Um, can you explain this process to our listeners? Well, what what the student would need to do is they, they would go out, uh, a first-time student, they would go out and uh, they would need to get an FSA ID, and FSA means Federal Student Aid is what that stands for. So they would get an, an FSA ID um, now, they don't need that to initially get the FAFSA started, uh, but when they get to the have to, having to input the IRS information, the student tax info and the parent tax info, it's at that point that you will need the FSA ID. Now, I do need to mention the student would have an FSA ID, and then the parent, whichever parent wants to sign the FAFSA, will need to have uh, his or her own FSA ID as well. Uh, and, and I did mention too earlier that, that you need the FSA ID because when you get to a certain part within the FAFSA, it does give you the option of uh, uploading your tax information from the IRS website. I highly recommend students and parents both do that. Um, and of course you need your FSA ID to be able to link uh, your tax info to the FAFSA. So, but once you do that, then that inputs, it brings up all your information from the IRS for all the relevant uh, fields in the FAFSA, and it completes that data for you, the student and the parent. Um, and so that way you can just skip over all those fields because they're already auto-filled in for, based on the info uh, filed with the IRS. So that will save you a lot of time. And when we talk about verification, I'll mention how that'll save you time as well there. Okay. Um, what is the UCM code that the students will use, Tony, for for the FAFSA? When when a student goes into the FAFSA, it, they will be asked, "What colleges do you want uh, this information sent to?" And it's it's helpful to have the code. You can do a search by the name of the school, so you could you could type in University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg, or if you have the code, which is zero zero two four five four then you'll be able to pull it up uh, that way as well. Um, so that's the either way gets you the code and gets, gets you the information so that you can have your FAFSA sent to, to us. Okay. Um, what documents do, do students and their parents need to file the FAFSA? Generally, uh, students and parents would need the Social Security card. Now, if they know their Social Security number, uh, that works. They don't necessarily need to have the card physically to fill out the FAFSA if they know their numbers. Uh, the federal tax returns for for 22-23 FAFSA, it would be the, the 2020 income tax return. So you'd want to have copies of those available. Now, if you are uh, uploading the information from the IRS, of course, you, you may not necessarily need the tax info, but you will be asked to verify some, some data points on uh, the tax return before the IRS will let you uh, upload their info, and it's usually just the address. <coughs> Excuse me. 
they want you to verify the address exactly as it was on your uh, tax return for that for that year. So it's good to have that. Uh, it's good to have bank statements, uh, investments, uh, things like that, and then of course the FSA ID. Uh, you'll need to have the F uh, again the student and the parent will both need an FSA ID to be able to sign the FAFSA before they can submit it. Tony, you've been doing this a while. Uh, what are some common errors you see that people make when filing the FAFSA? Uh, probably the most common errors are uh, a lot of times the the adjusted gross uh, from the tax info is, is superimposed. What that means is so like the parent adjusted gross is put under the student uh, and the student adjusted gross for the parent, et cetera, things like that. <coughs> Excuse me, minor things like that. Uh, mistyped. Uh, or superimposed numbers on the social security number, uh, mistyped date of birth. A lot of times that's, that's uh, just things like that are very common. <coughs> and another a big hurdle that students encounter is if the parents have a problem with, their, with the tax return in question. So for 2020, so if the parents, say for example, the parents are married and one of them filed head of household uh, and the IRS rejected it, or there, there's there's some reason why the tax returns are not have not been accepted. That will keep the student from getting any federal aid until that's taken care of. So it's going to be very important. And if parents have not been filing their tax returns, that will also uh, kill any any chance a student could have for for federal aid as well, because we have to have a tax return on file before we can uh, award them federal money <clears throat> for that. So. Uh, but yeah, those are the most common errors, and they're sometimes they're a little bit of a pain to fix, especially if the student social security number is incorrect, because when the FAFSA is filed with the central processing, uh, uh, with the Department of Ed, they they index that FAFSA under that social security number. So if it's it's not it's not a simple matter of just changing the social to get it correct for the student. Um, it's it's a little more of a challenge to get that fixed, but date of birth and parent social and that sort of thing is, is much easier to fix on the okay. back end. Tony, what happens if I get selected for verification? Verification is is a is a normal process within financial aid, but it, it frustrates a lot of people, uh, including us, because it's an extra step in the process. So when a when a student files a FAFSA, uh, there's a very strong chance they could be selected uh, randomly. So the point of verification was just to verify that the information input on the FAFSA is accurate. Um, and, and there's arguments going back and forth if verification was in, uh, put in place to, to uh, cut down on fraud. Uh, there, there have been attempts over my 25 years in financial aid of, of people manipulating their data on the FAFSA. And a lot of time the, the uh, verification catches that sort of thing. But most, I've very seen very few instances of, of outright fraud. It's more uh, just honest mistakes. People, they're not sure what's supposed to go in a certain field and they miss something, uh, which happens. Um, and of course, so verification uh, is a process whereby we send the form, a form to the student uh, asking them to verify the members within the household, uh, the relationship to the student, uh, and then we also ask them for some other pertinent bits of data, and usually we have to verify the tax information with that. So if you did not match your, this is where this came in when I mentioned earlier, if you did not match your tax info to the IRS when you initially filled out the FAFSA, we are required to get either a copy of your tax transcript, which you must request from the IRS, or you can uh, submit a copy of a signed 1040 to us, but either way, it's it's legwork you've got to do. 
So that's why I always encourage students, if you can link to the IRS, that's going to save you a ton of time because then we don't need the tax info because uh, it's already been verified by the Internal Revenue Service. So. Um, Tony, talk to our listeners about the selective service piece for males. <clears throat> so selective service, uh, and they're actually talking about doing away with this when they simplify the FAFSA. But currently, uh, students are required to, males are required to uh, uh, file for selective service. And as, uh, as your listeners may or may not know, you have, to, you have to file with selective service within 30 days of your 18th birthday. And, uh, and I tell a lot of students, if they have not filed with selective service, of course, it's very easy now. Back in my day, we had to go to the post office to do that. Uh, but nowadays, they can go online and, and just file. But another good way to do it if you've not done it yet and you're within, actually you don't even need to be within 30 days of your birthday, what you can do is just say yes on the FAFSA, go ahead and select, or not select me, go ahead and, and add me to the selective service or, or uh, whatever, they, whatever they call the question. But, um, and they will, they will automatically send your name into the selective service within 30 days of your birthday. So if your birthday isn't until next November, your 18th birthday, the FAFSA people have it on file that you said yes, um, you know, put, sign me up for selective service, um, and they will do it within 30 days of your birthday, so you don't need to do it again. Um, so that's, that's a really good thing about that. But uh, uh, now I have had some questions, <clears throat> it seems like I've had more of those lately, is if you have a transgender student uh, that is transitioning from male to female, um, the, that student would still need to file a selective service. They're looking at the gender at birth. So if the student was born male, they have to register for selective service even if they're female now. Uh, so that's very important. And of course, going the other way, transgenders, female to male, they do not have to register for selective service. Okay. Uh, Tony, what happens if I have uh, a change after I file the FAFSA? And I'll give you a couple examples here. What if uh, one of my parents loses a job or if one of my parents passes away after I file that FAFSA? Oh, that, that's a good question. What you can do is we, we uh, can conduct what's called a professional judgment or a recalc. So when you, when you file your FAFSA and, and you've got mom and dad on there and they both made money, uh, they both have jobs from, from the 2020 tax, uh, tax year, and then let's say uh, mom gets laid off. So you can, what you need to do is notify the financial aid office and let them know that you have a change in your status from what you put on the FAFSA. So I recommend that you go ahead and, and fill out the FAFSA as it, as it is. So when it asks for mom and dad's 2020 tax information, go ahead and put that information on there and then immediately contact us and we will start uh, the processing. And of course that will require the student to submit paperwork. We need to verify them, that mom got laid off Usually we'll ask for a copy of the layoff notice from mom. Uh, if mom was receiving unemployment during that time, if mom has now got a new job, we, we, what we do is we update the FAFSA to, to give you a present day snapshot of the, the family income. So, uh, but it does require some legwork on the student's part to get that, that documentation to us because these files are audited and we have to show to the federal auditors that yes, we, we changed the FAFSA, but this is the reason why and this is how we did it. And uh, same, same thing works with it when a parent passes away. Uh, what you would do is you would contact our office and uh, let's say it's dad this time. Dad died uh, since, since they filed the FAFSA for, or uh, filed the uh, taxes, sorry, for 2020. Let's say dad died early this year in 2021. Uh, 
you just reach out to our office. We'll, we will request a copy of uh, death certificate uh, or, or some verification of dad's death. And uh, generally, that's there may be some other documentation. It will vary. It's a case-by-case -case thing. Uh, but we then that will enable us to go ahead and remove dad's income totally from the FAFSA and it will just take care of it from there. But uh, I recommend the students, whenever they have changes to a status, family size, family income, uh, to reach out to our office and we'll just handle it again. It's a case-by-case -case thing and we, we handle each, uh, each case differently depending on their, their situation. Okay. Um, a couple of common questions, Tony. To, do I include the value of my home on the FAFSA? Oh, that's, that is a very common question. When you, when you uh, are completing the FAFSA, it asks for, when you get to the untaxed income, it asks you for things like uh, the value of your, of your uh, real estate and investments and things of that nature. And of course, I've had a lot of parents over the years ask me, do I include the value of my home? Because the FAFSA does mention uh, real estate and something to that nature. And the government doesn't want you, the Department of Ed doesn't want you to put the value of your primary home. However, if your parents have a vacation home, any rentals, uh, any investment properties, things of that nature, uh, then you must list the, the net value of those. And of course, I say net value meaning uh, what is the value minus what is owed on it. Uh, so that's what you would report on, on that for investment income, but you would not include your uh, primary residence. Okay. Um, do I include things like a 401k retirement plan on the FAFSA? Uh, that's another good question. I, I get a lot of that from parents because I have parents say, I have 200000 in my 401k or my retirement or whatever they call it. And, um, and I tell them, no, that is not, and the Department of Ed recognizes this, that is not money that has been earmarked for your child's education. That is earmarked for your retirement. So you do leave that off. However, if you have a... Um, investment accounts, things of that nature, you would report the value of those. But anything that's intended um, or that's, that's, that's again, listed as for retirement uh, or as a retirement plan, you would not include that. Okay. Uh, students get a student aid report, Tony, and on that is a, something called an EFC. What is that? <laughs> The, I've, had, I've had many a, a parent ask me about that, too, because the, they, they get the letter or the notification from the Department of Ed, and they say, your, congratulations, we received your FAFSA, your EFC is 30000 or whatever. And, uh, and, and they see that, and they, it, it's expected family contribution. And so these parents will ask me, surely the Department of, uh, the government doesn't expect my family to contribute 30000 And so I have to tell them, no, uh, that, that label is, is uh, <clears throat> is misleading because they don't, they, even though it says expected family contribution, they don't actually expect the family to contribute 30000 in this case. Uh, it is, and they're actually changing the name of this. They're going to call it a student aid index in the next year or two. Um, and that's, to me, that's more accurate. So the, what that is, is it's a number that the financial aid office uses to determine a student's need. Um, and we plug that into a formula. <clears throat> Uh, that every school has to do and every, every school has to develop a cost of attendance or a budget for every student and the EFC is then plugged into that formula to help us determine remaining eligibility for need and things of that nature so but that's what the EFC is that generally again for for uh, you people at home when you get a notification back and it, it gives you the EFC the lower that number the, the better so if you want if your EFC is zero 
that means that this current year you'd be eligible for almost 6500 in a Pell Grant, which, which is free money, um, and possibly other uh, need-based aid. So you want that EFC number to be very low. You don't want it to be twenty or 30000 like I mentioned earlier. And generally, if the number gets up to about 50, 55 or 5600 uh, you will be eligible for some kind of a federal grant uh, or free money. So if, you, if your number's below 6000 uh, you should expect some kind of a free grant from the federal government. Okay. Tony, let's talk about uh, some of the different types of free aid. You mentioned the Pell Grant, and mm -hmm. then there's a few others. Talk to our listeners about that. Well, the, again, uh, most of the, the free aid uh, that, a, that a student could be eligible for uh, is triggered once a student completes a FAFSA. The FAFSA is, uh, I worked with a financial aid guy years ago, he called it the holy grail of financial aid because you have to file the FAFSA if you want any kind of need-based aid. And of course the Pell Grant is, is the most prominent one, and the Pell Grant's been around since the 60s. Um, it wasn't always called Pell Grant, but, uh, and I even got a Pell Grant when I was in college. The SEOG is another grant. It's Supplemental Education Opportunity Grant. It is uh, also a federal grant, and it's, uh, it's also need-based, which basically means if a student shows need, they're eligible for it. And the SEOG, the rules are that we have to give that money out, and it's limited, the SEOG is, uh, and how much we can give out. But uh, we, have, we must give it out to the neediest students first, and, and we interpret that to mean any student with a zero EFC. So if you got a zero EFC, you're very likely to get an SEOG grant, um, and generally we, we give out $750 per year, so $375 a semester. Bright Flight uh, is another, <clears throat> and that's, of course, students have to fulfill certain criteria to be eligible for that. That's, that's from the state of Missouri, uh, and there is an Access Missouri grant as well. Uh, but Bright Flight has a little, uh, little more strenuous uh, eligibility criteria. It's for your top, whatever, 1% or I'm not for sure um, what that is. But the, the Missouri Department of Education, Higher Education, has a website, and it talks about Bright Flight and what you have to do to be eligible for that. And then the Access Missouri uh, is a state grant, and it can vary in, in, uh, in amounts. Generally, we award students $1,500 up front. That's the minimum a student, a student could expect. Uh, this, actually, this year, it's $2,540. So uh, we usually don't know how much the student will be eligible for until we get the funding, and that's usually in like August or September, very late in the process. Uh, but uh, if they're eligible, they're, they're guaranteed a $1,500 minimum, and then we just adjust it from there uh, going up. Uh, we also have, <clears throat> it's, it's, federal work study is a little different animal. It's uh, if a student wants to work on campus, uh, the way federal work study works is if a student, and I keep mentioning need, if a student still has need, they file their FAFSA by April 15th, um, you know, and, and shows the need, then generally they can, if they find a job on campus, what that means is, and I'll, I'll just cite as an example, if you have a student that, uh, well I'll give you an example with my students, I, I pay $10 an hour out of my office for my student workers, but if the student is not federal work study eligible, I, I have to pay them $10 an hour out of my budget. And my office budget is very limited. Uh, I only have two or three thousand dollars, and that's not going to get a student very far on a job if they're working 20 hours a week, uh, which is usually the maximum they're allowed to work. <clears throat> but if I have a federal work study student, and both of mine are, I'm paying them two dollars and fifty cents an hour out of my budget, 
and the other 750 is coming from the federal government. So they're still making the same amount as a regular uh, institutional work-study student, <clears throat> but these students um, are just paid less out of my budget, so it benefits me uh, and my office. But federal work-study students are more apt to be hired for that reason because a lot of offices don't, just don't have the money uh, to, to pay students $10 an hour. They just, it's just not been budgeted for them to do that. Um, so that's, that's federal work study, that's work money, it's not free aid necessarily. Uh, you have to work for it, but when, it's a job. So when you earn that money, it's yours, you're not required to pay it towards your bill with UCM or anything like that. It's, you just treat it as a job and that's a paycheck. So, uh, but it does come through the financial aid office is how that works. Uh, I did also want to mention that we have a foundation um, database. It's called Scholarship Finder, and it's, it's actually open right now. Uh, they just opened it September 1 for the 22-23 school year. So students will, want to, will need to get out there. Uh, if, you're, if you're even remotely thinking about coming to UCM, please get out there and create a profile uh, because the, the window closes February 1 of 2022. <coughs> Excuse me, and we want to maximize the student's eligibility for any foundation scholarships. And I say foundation; these are scholarships that have been uh, from money donated by our alumni. So uh, they they want to give back to the institution, and they want to help current and, and prospective students fund their education. So, and we've we we've given two, three, four million dollars a year out of there, and we want to continue that trend. Awesome. <laughs> Tony, we've talked about free money. Now let's talk about the, some of the different types of loans students can get to assist in paying for their education. Uh, okay, loans. Yeah, we don't, in financial aid, we don't like to encourage loans, but we understand that there is a need for students that may need to have those. Um, we we uh, always like to keep the, the borrowing to a minimum, especially when we have, uh, we're approaching a $2 trillion nationwide uh, student loan debt. Um, but uh, we also understand that, that loans may be necessary for a student to attend here, and that's, that's okay too. Uh, I had student loans, you probably did when you're in college. It's very common. Um, so what we do is, is if a student is eligible, and generally they are, uh, they complete the FAFSA, the, we award them federal loans, and they're called direct student loans. And the direct loan, what that means is the, the U.S. Department of Education is the lender, so there's no private lenders there. It's not not any private lenders involved with that. So the Department of Ed is the lender. And there are two types of direct loans. There's a subsidized and an unsubsidized. And subsidized means that the, the American taxpayer is paying for the student's interest while they're in school. So it's an interest-free loan to the student. The unsubsidized loan interest does accrue and uh, on those loans. So uh, the student has the option of making interest-only payments or they just put off payments entirely and can just start paying on all of them later when they separate from their school. And I, I say separate rather than graduate. If a student has to drop out of school, God forbid that happen, um, they have a six-month grace period before they have to start repayment. Uh, so it's not just a graduation, but if a student sits out. Um, and once they use that six-month grace period, they don't get it back. So if they sit out six months, go back to school, uh, those loans will not have a six-month grace again. It's a one-time deal for each loan. <clears throat> so, uh, so yeah, I would encourage students, uh, just be mindful. If, if you have to set out uh, or anything like that, just bear in mind the, the impact that could have on your student loans for repayment. 
Um, but otherwise, you know, the, it's it's a good deal. The interest rate on the loans, uh, I was going to actually bring that up, but uh, I may not have it handy here. But the interest rate on the loans <clears throat> are very reasonable. So, um, yeah, I don't I have to find it. But uh, so uh, if a student needs student loans, they can, they're welcome to have that. Okay. Um, Tony, several of these have an origination fee. Can you tell our students about that? Yeah, the origination fee is running about ten or eleven dollars for every thousand dollars borrowed, um, and and that's part of a sequester that's I don't know ten or eleven years old. It's a law that was passed way back when by Congress to save money, <clears throat> and the origination fee has has always kind of been around, and it's it's a kind of a sore spot with me because I don't think students should have to pay. A fee to get a student loan that's ridiculous to me and we've been we in the financial aid industry have been going up to Capitol Hill myself included and talking with Congress about removing that fee because uh, there's just no no point to it um, <clears throat> and so uh, but but uh, yes the the student would have to pay uh, it's taken out of the loan so if a student borrows uh, $3,000 that roughly $33 is taken out for an origination fee so uh, so I try and tell students just be mindful of that. That the, the, if you ask for three thousand, you don't actually get three thousand. Okay. And the plus loan works the same way, except the origination fee is higher. Uh, it's like thirty to forty dollars per every thousand taken out. So uh, and so I like to tell parents first of all, when a parent goes out and takes out a direct plus, uh, they they call it plus loan, parent loan for undergraduate students. So if a parent goes out and requests a plus loan. <clears throat> and they can go to uh, studentloans.gov to request that. That's where the parent will also need their FSA ID again because they'll need to request that under their FSA ID and they can go out and apply for a parent loan. <clears throat> now if they're, and that's good, they, we call it gap funding. So whatever the financial aid doesn't cover, uh, a lot of parents will go out and do a plus loan for the difference. And so I like to tell them, uh, take into account that origination fee. So if you, let's say for example, you owe $2,300. Uh, first of all, I tell them double it because you're going to owe that again in the spring, which is so it's a pretty safe bet that you'll have 4600 that you owe for fall and spring. But then you want to add in that uh, origination fee on top of that. So you don't want to ask for 4600 because uh, then you'll only get 4370 or something. And then you're left owing a couple hundred dollars and you're going to be irritated, which is understandable as a parent. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, yeah, you just made a, you just paid forty three to forty four hundred dollars, and then you still get a bill for another two hundred. That's a bit irritating. So I try and tell parents uh, take out a little extra, allow for that origination fee, and then that way the bill's covered. So, and if you have any questions about figuring that, please contact our office. We can help you with that as well. Uh, the MoFelp loan, there are set criteria for that, but that that's also it's through the Missouri Scholarship and Loan Foundation. And uh, it's it's got a zero percent interest rate, uh, but the, there's certain eligibility criteria. But I would recommend you looking into the MoFelp loan if you're interested in that. Uh, that's certainly an option as well. Okay, Tony, uh, I'm offered these loans. I'm not for sure what my total bill is going to be yet. Do I have to accept those loans right away, or what's the process? Good question. Um, yes, you don't you don't have to accept them right away. We when we uh, when we send out your award letter and your award notification. We, we auto accept all of the free aid, the scholarships, the Pell Grants, things we know the student wants. 
we leave these loans in uh, what we call offered status. So the student can go out and accept uh, now, or if they want to wait, they can just leave it in offered status, or they can go ahead and decline it now. Um, and then if they, uh, so if they decline it now, and then they decide in next July, oh darn it, I needed those loans, can I still get them? Yes, you can. Let our office know, we'll re-offer them. So those loans are available as long as the student is enrolled here, uh, that we can do that. So, um, so yes, yeah, so there's, there's no requirement that you have to accept them right away or anything like that. And I did want to mention, the, I found the, the sheet on the interest rates. Um, so currently for 21-22, so it's basically any loan that's originated between uh, October 1, or I'm sorry, July 1, <coughs> excuse me, July 1, 2021, 20, and June 30, 22, <clears throat> the interest rates uh, are going to be 3.73%. So they went up about a percent from the 2021 year, darn it. But the economy's recovering a little bit from COVID, so the, the interest rates are slowly creeping back up. Now, if you're looking at a plus loan, the interest rate on that is 6.28% for this, for this uh, again, that's for this current school year. We won't know the 22-23 interest rates till probably May of 22, um, but I would expect them to creep up a little more on that. And uh, we mentioned the, the origination fees also. Uh, <clears throat> on the students' uh, direct loans, it's 1.057%. So they get, again, they get about $989 out of every $1,000 that's borrowed. Parents is 4.22%. So they get about $957 for every thousand. It's about $43 taken out. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, Tony, any other areas or topics we need to cover today that you can think of? Well, I, I do want to mention one other thing. The, there are a lot of scholarship searches that are out online that students can go out. They're, they're asked to create a profile, and they, and they may be asked weird questions. In fact, I, I helped a girl out, you know, I don't know, years ago, and one question she was asked was, do you, ha do you have a, any family member that was in the Marine Corps? And she thought that was so weird to ask that. And I said, well, go ahead and fill it out. She goes, well, I had an uncle that was in the Marines. And so she said yes. And then she said her uncle. And she, again, we didn't know why I'd asked her that. <clears throat> and uh, so she went ahead and submitted it. And I'll be darned if she didn't get a Marine Corps scholarship because her uncle was in the Marines. So, so my first uh, bit of wisdom I'd give you is when you're filling out these, these online applications for, for these scholarship web searches, <coughs> excuse me, I'm coming off a of sinus fiction, I'm sorry, um, is that don't, uh, don't question the questions. If they seem ludicrous, there's a reason behind it, and there's a reason why they're asking you. And uh, the other thing, too, is a lot of these web searches may charge you upwards of $70 to $100. Uh, if they're wanting to charge you, I would say run. Don't use them. You don't need to be charged. Uh, you shouldn't have to be charged to do a national uh, scholarship search. There are plenty of free... Uh, scholarship start, uh, sites out there, search sites, and uh, I would say go to those. So. Okay, awesome. Tony, if a parent <coughs> or students have any questions whatsoever about the FAFSA or financial aid, how can they reach out to you? They can, they can reach out to our office. Uh, they can go to our website, uh, ucm.edu slash SFS, uh, Student Financial Services. And, uh, and then there's off to the left-hand side of that website, there's a, there's a link that, that you can send an email uh, and, question, and send questions to us, and we'll be glad to help you out with the FASM. Excellent. Tony, thank you for taking the time to join us today and talk about financial aid for our students. 
We want to let our listeners know that Mondays with Mo can be heard on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcast, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. I will invite you to join me next time when I talk with Nick Cookingham about the spring 2022 enrollment process.